before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to Looney Hour, episode 80. As always, only joined by the three, two amigos today. Uh, we got Rich Diaz, Acorn Macro Consulting, and uh, no boomer today. Uh, he's just away for personal reasons, so we'll have him back back on the show next week. Uh, but we do have a boomer filling in for him today. Uh, it is the former head of the Conservative Party, Aaron O'Toole. Uh, so we'll have him on very shortly uh, and again, before our, our liberal listeners get all uh, offended here and unsubscribe, as always, we, we've left the invitation open for people of all political stripes, uh, NDP, you know, orange shirts, red shirts, uh, JT, Christopher Freeland, if you want to come on the show, the invite is always, always open. Um, and, you know, Rich, we wanted to bring on Aaron today. Uh, I think he's largely stepped out of his political role at this point, but we just want to actually just try to ask some unbiased, hard hitting questions and just get his opinion on things. Um, and so hopefully people can kind of try to put their political bias bias aside and uh, let's try to get the, to the heart of some issues in Canada. And um, so we're excited to have Aaron on, obviously. Yeah, and we can ask him some fun stuff too, like uh, what color is the Gatorade in the uh, MPs <laughs> in MP conference board, and uh, if there's any shenanigans going on behind the scenes. No, no, I'm I'm teasing, obviously. Gonna get um, his I thoughts think we'll, on Tiff Macklin. Yeah, that's right, and that's right. Uh, Macland. Oh man, <laughs> I got called out because I can't say his name properly, which is absolutely shame on me. So thank you, astute listener. Uh, yeah, I screwed up. Yeah, there's lots of good data coming out. Obviously, we miss Keith. Uh, so, um, but but we will we'll survive without him. We'll yeah, lot, him. lots of pressure here. I mean, it's probably a good week realistically to bring uh, Aaron onto the yeah, show. That's right. Um, that's right. <laughs> nice little gap filler here. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, just to kind of start things off here, I guess sort of you know framing up the interview um, on the on the housing front as we kind of always start things off. Uh, national house prices. Uh, so we had the the latest release from the Canadian Real Estate Association. So the March data came out. Uh, so CREA reported that uh, house prices in Canada uh, for the first time in 12 months uh, increased on a month month over month basis. Now keep in mind this is seasonally adjusted, hedonically adjusted data. So this isn't like oh the average sales price went up because it's March and it's spring selling season. No, no, like the data all adjusted. Uh, and this is kind of, keep in mind these these home price indexes, as I've talked about on the show, they are ultimately lagging indicators. So- They're flawed, they're flawed. Yeah, they're doing their best to sort of capture what they want to tell you. But in reality, as we've been sort of saying, you know, you know boots on the ground over here is that, Housing has basically been accelerating to the upside since January. Um, you so called the bottom. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. Well, I'm still like very cautious. I'm still a little bit concerned about like the sustainability of all of this. But um, you know, you know, I wrote a newsletter last week and just saying this is a macro show. 
98% of home buyers do not care, do not think, do not know about macro. They just go need to buy house <laughs> and listings low demand picking up. I'm competing in multiple offers. What do I have to pay to get this house? Yeah. That's how the vast majority of home buyers think. And so real estate works in the near term. It works on a very micro level, which is like how many listings are for sale and what's the demand picture. And I can tell you the demand picture has been picking up the listing situation on a national level, another 20 year low for the month of March. So we had 20 year lows, I think in January, February, and now in March. Uh, so I, I have a dumb question is listings the same as inventory. Um, so new listings would be like how many like new homes were like how many homes were listed to go onto the MLS system in the month of March. And then you have okay. inventory would be like standing inventory. So if you look at standing okay, inventory, the way we typically would measure that is like, show me the months of inventory. Right. So it's flow versus stock basically. Yeah. And so okay, the cool. stock right now is at 3.9 on a national level, 3.9 months of inventory, which is about one month below the long-term average. So three, anything sub four on a national level is, is, is considered a seller's market. Okay. So it's, it's actually the same for existing homes in the US. It's very low. For new homes, it's obviously spiked. Um, but in, in but I know for existing homes, it's um um it's it's actually quite low in the US. I can't remember Rick, exactly there, the number, but there was actually a chart out on on Twitter today. I was looking uh, it was a redfin chart showing that yeah, uh, I saw that too. Yeah. Yeah, I think new listings in the US were like at like record lows. Yeah, I can't remember exactly which one it is, but th th there is very little supply. And then, and just also a thing was interesting is sort of the vacancy rates. Now, I don't know anything about Canadian vacancy rates, but I do know the vacancy rates for owner op uh, owner occupied as well as rental in, in America are very very low. So is that the same in Canada? I guess it's the same, right? Yeah, it's really tight. I mean, I, I, the rental market is interesting. I think it's picking up because it's a seasonal uh, aspect of the rental market right now. But like, I'll give you an example of like the downtown Vancouver market. Um, so like a one bedroom condo right now, you can't find a one bedroom condo rental in the downtown Vancouver for less than like 2,600 a month. Okay. How many square feet? Like uh, I'm talking like 570 square feet, maybe something like something like under 600. And this is not okay. going to be like a brand new glitzy condo. This is going to be like very like, that's very bare. It's more expensive now. than London. Sorry to interrupt you. That's more yeah. expensive than London. Anyway, carry on. And you could, you could not, you could not rent these units out during the pandemic. I mean, granted it was the pandemic. People were like leaving downtown and stuff, but you could not rent these out for like $2,000 a month. Like that was a tough sell. You were probably going like, okay, listen, I'll give you 1900 and, and let's just get this thing filled up. So now you probably can't find anything for less than 26. So the rental growth, um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's interesting. I know that I've talked about it before on the show of saying, hey, it looks like the rental market's kind of topped out. I, I might be less con you know, convinced on that call now. Well, I have a question that relates to sort of that rental market and sort of, and maybe doesn't, not Vancouver, but Toronto, which is obviously a Thai rental market too. I mean, I saw this like sensationalist chart uh, on Twitter, which is, and I'll give the guy's name. I think it's Jeremiah something. Same. But anyway, he said the number of cranes in Toronto is 238. The number of cranes in all of the United States is 259. I mean, is that... Is that kind of bogus? Is that just like a number that's just like misunderstood yeah. and misrepresented? Or should we paying should we be paying attention to that? Uh, or? I think that's a really good like. So then they put in like I think it wasn't actually on that, but they they added in like Vancouver somehow. I guess and, and so I think they were showing yeah. like Vancouver had like two hundred, which is like was really high. 
and I can tell you anecdotally anyways, like, I don't think there's a lot of cranes here. Okay. Interesting. I, I like, I mean, I could like downtown there's like, there's been like hardly any new construction being built downtown in the last five years because the numbers don't pencil and they can't get projects off the ground. Right. So I don't know. I mean, okay. All right. Well, so we'll investigate it, further. Yeah. If you look at it statistically, Canada definitely has a lot of houses under construction at the moment. Um, but then when you start like really filtering it through and saying, well, hypothetically, if we continue to allow, you know, a million people into the country, then clearly we're not units under construction. It's not going to be enough. Yeah. But statistically, yes, units under construction is, is, I think it's at record highs right now. Okay. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, we've talked about this. We talked about population a lot. So, and we'll obviously ask Mr. O'Toole about that. But the, um, but in the U.S., population growth is extremely, extremely low. I mean, it is recovering from the, the, from the, the trough of, of the pandemic and stuff. And, and obviously, there's just way fewer immigrants. Um, or is it less immigrants? Anyways, <laughs> I was good. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just it's incredible, really, the discrepancy. And I was just wondering if that related to it. I just thought it was a really cool chart. We can share it later you, you can look it up yourselves but yeah, yeah. we're gonna so what we're gonna do here is we're gonna get aaron onto the show but you know after this we still have a lot of things that we want to get through uh we've got we had canada cpi inflation come in so rich we're gonna have you walk through those numbers you know we want to chime in a little bit on this uh this uh, federal government strike you know one hundred fifty thousand workers now on the picket lines um and then we actually had some connect you know housing start data out of canada which i think is incredibly important so we're gonna kind of get into that in, in the rest of the show here. But uh, in the meantime, let's clip to our interview with Aaron uh, O'Toole right now. Thanks, thanks for, for uh, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, long time listener, first time caller. Cool. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we love it. Um, yeah, we just, uh, like I said, really appreciative of your time. Uh, we wanted to, you know, we, we gave the prelude to the show when you said, listen, like this is a show that uh, is interested in all political angles. And we wanted to sort of basically get your high level opinion on uh, what's going on in this country and what, what we can do to, to write the ship or improve it in any capacity. And so we kind of wanted to chat with you about that today. Sure. Yeah. And that's, I, I was still conservative leader when a friend from Toronto, a former banker recommended your show. I think it was maybe your third one. And I loved it because you were talking a lot of the business investing competitiveness issues, energy. Um, I'm often doing stuff while I'm listening and nodding in agreement. So uh, it's good to have these long form discussions about, you know, the opportunities for Canada, but also the challenges and what's going wrong. Yeah, no, it's the super humbling. So tell us, what are you up to these days? Like what's, what's your, what's your day to day look like? Well, I'm still, I'm in Bowmanville, the riding I represent here in the GTA right now. Uh, I've had a few things and then I'm back to Ottawa. Um, I've gone from being like 200 miles an hour for the last 10 years to more like 60, uh, which for me is, is a big, big change, a bit of, bit of whiplash. But I've been trying to advance a number of things, uh, both for my community. Uh, you guys talk about nuclear. Uh, the small modular reactor, the first commercialized one in North America, will be in my riding at the Darlington Generating Station. I've talked about SMRs for about eight years when people used to look at me funny. Um, and our area is a bit of a hub for the sector. We've got Cameco uh, and the, the, the fuel uh, upgrading in Port Hope nearby. So I've been working on that a lot on Ukraine. I've got my big mental health event on May 2nd with Romeo Dallaire, but I've announced that I'm also going to pull uh, pull the plug and finish up this session and go back to the private sector in the summer. Good for you. 
Rich, cool. do you have any questions on the, uh, you're getting Rich all excited about nuclear. <laughs> I, I was hoping, I was hoping. I have lots of questions. I'm going to try to, I get excited when I talk to about things that I like, as I'm sure if you've been a long time listener, you know, uh, it comes from a good place. I have loads of questions. First of all, thank you very much for taking the time um, out of your less busy schedule to come and chat with us. Um, like, like Steve said, I mean, you know, we have plenty of bias, but we try not to bullshit anybody. And, and uh, we try really honestly to just have discussions that, um, that are well-informed, sometimes more informed than others. But I mean, I don't know if we should just get right into it, but, um, I mean, I, I, I think, um, I think there's loads of questions that I'd like to talk about. There's like, you know, we can talk about the BOC inflation, talk about housing affordability, uh, we talk about you know um, research and development spending, which is at a 25 year low uh, relative to GDP. Something that I, that's a really big bugbear for me. But my, I'm, I want to ask before we get into sort of those more detailed questions. My question is like, you know, we we I watched the question period, which is badly named because no one ever answers any questions, and we're, I'm screwing up Keith's joke, but you know what I mean. Uh, my question is, do, do, behind the scenes when the cameras are off, I mean, are there honest kind of interparty discussions about? what I think are extremely obvious issues in Canada or, or is it always just, you know, is what we see is what we get when, when it comes to question period or, or these different politicians in Ottawa? Good question. You know, there's a joke in Ottawa that says um, it's called question period. It's not called answer period for right. a reason. Um, and I was told that when I started off in the Harper government as a parlsec and then a minister, um, and I used to try and answer the question. I feel people deserve that. You can still put your, your spin on it, but um, I always tried to do that. But I'll tell you, it's gotten worse because of COVID. So this cross-party uh, work you're talking about, Rich, that is one of the big things that has suffered as a result of virtual parliaments and, and the COVID shutdowns and all that stuff. There was less ability to collaborate. Um, I was talking to a senator, you know, the upper chamber the other day, the closure of the main building of parliament too. Uh, we're in a temporary uh, House of Commons now. The Senate is moved down the street. So there's even less interaction between parliamentarians of all stripes, both houses. And I think that's gonna take a while to come back. Um, but my early years, yes, there was some cross-pollination between the parties on issues uh, like military and, and veterans and mental health. Um, less so, unfortunately, on things like energy and pipelines. And that's why you can see the Liberals are basically shut out of large portions of the country. And so they don't pay attention to those issues as much as they should. Um, and increasingly, the, the impact of social media. So a lot of the left is performing for the left and the right is performing for the right. And we talk about the issues we want to, and there's less cross-pollination there. So uh, I'm leaving with with the reputation of one that has tried to do that uh, maybe not successfully enough but uh, um, i really hope we get back to that because some of these big picture issues on on energy on security on foreign interference uh, in our, in our elections in our democracies they require an all hands on deck all parties approach so let's um so if i if i may steve i mean let's just let's get one of the questions i've i want to know what the Liberal Party is thinking now. Maybe this, and maybe you are the worst person to ask, or maybe you're the best person to ask. And, and I would ask you to to be as kind of balanced and as honest with with your answers if you can. Um, you know, energy without energy, Canada would be totally screwed. There, and and I believe very strongly in a welfare state. My parents are immigrants to this country. My dad died of cancer. He rocked up to the to the hospital. 
And they didn't ask him to pay for a damn thing. And the reason that that was possible was because we have an incredible inflow of hard currency from oil and energy products. Are people in Ottawa aware of this fact? <laughs> yes. Um, okay. and the, <laughs> but Ooh. the big issue I'll tell you is the the Liberal Party, you know, and I'm trying to be a little post-partisan, but I'll be straight with you. The Liberal Party under Justin Trudeau is not the traditional Liberal Party. I I'm run aware. In, <laughs> I run into people, including you know, former prime ministers, uh, that aren't really in line with with the approach he's taken. I, I used to joke that Justin Trudeau was the first NDB, NDP prime minister we've ever had. He just used the Liberal Party brand to, to get there. Um, that has caused a really, really short-sighted approach on energy policy. And years ago, I used to talk about Canada becoming an ESG or an ESGI superpower in that why are we allowing the free world to use hydrocarbons, natural gas, uh, oil, uranium, the whole energy spectrum from bad actor countries like Russia, for example, or Venezuela, when we could push our energy products as best in class, best in the world, ethical, environmentally conscious. Um, and the LNG they want, you know, coming from both of our coasts and we can't get anything done in Canada. And increasingly that's leading capital markets to view us as a risk. It's leading us to be weaker, less important in the world, poorer over time. And that energy will come from other places. And so you'll yeah. see other countries benefit. So I think there's a lot of liberals I talk to that want their party to actually go back to its traditional moorings. And I think whenever Trudeau leaves, you'll see that leadership being a bit of a battle for the soul of the Liberal Party. And as conservatives, as a you know proud conservative, I've said we've got to remain competitive and not just plan on defeating Trudeau. He may leave. And if the Liberal Party you know goes back to kind of more center, um, we have to make sure we're competitive in in what journalist Steve Pakin calls MTV, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver. We're not winning enough seats there, and that's the problem we have to overcome. Is there a business case for LNG to Europe? Absolutely. Um, and in fact, one of the things I wish that I had done better on, uh, I view it as one of my, my failures, was making a case for that better, particularly for a project called GNL Quebec, uh, LNG Quebec in the Saguenay. I know... Rich, you're from Quebec, you may know this project. I begged both Legault and Jason Kenney to show support for this project because the Trudeau government wanted to kill it. Uh, Legault used to be more pro-resource development. Um, and this project could have been the first net zero LNG facility in the world. Warren Buffett was an investor through Berkshire. Um, he pulled out when it looked like it would never get approved and we were having the rail blockades around the country and we looked like basically a basket case as opposed to somewhere where capital could plan on a, a, a return over a reasonable period of time. That project was tailor-made for Germany. I've spoken to three different German ambassadors going back 10 years. They've wanted LNG. The hydrogen stuff Trudeau announced, that's, that's window dressing. They want LNG. They want steady... Uh, supply and the Saguenay port, you know, we can keep it ice free. We produce our aluminum there. 
it, you know, the, the, the temperature, the hydroelectricity, it is such a win-win-win. We are being stupid. So this is the one area where I wish I could have pushed Legault a little more. Jason Kenney had invested in Keystone. And when Biden canceled Keystone, Jason got a lot of flack in Alberta. He wanted Quebec to invest. And so we had all these governments saying, you go, you go, you go. And I really think it's a, it's a lost opportunity for us. It's still a great project if somebody can show some fortitude and get it done. So, so one of the, I think the, the issues is that people just are not aware the degree to which Canada is a resource extractive country. And I would argue, sir, that I think it's the, a lot of the politicians who are desperate to get these projects through have not properly informed their constituents of just the reality of the situation. Um, without our current, without energy products, our current account balance would be one of the lowest in the developed world. Um, it is 50% of all extractive industries, mines, agriculture, forest, paper products, energies, 50% of our exports. Um, you, you know, we're, these are not insignificant numbers. And in order to support our welfare state, I, I wouldn't, cons frankly, before Justin Trudeau, I would never have considered myself a conservative. My question for you is, is there a way that someone like us can do a better job of sort of presenting those um, issues as people who care about the environment, but also feel that this is a path forward. I think you guys do a great job. And, you know, that's why when you were talking one show, hey, we're calling for all leaders, come and talk. And I send a note to Keith because we've got some mutual friends in Halifax. And I said, look, if the current leaders don't step up, there's a former that uh, is actually a fan of Looney Hour. And so I'd be happy to come on because we need more smart, informed, long-form discussion on these issues. In, in the social media age where people scroll to see a 30-second clip, how can you talk about the fact that our, our Pathways group, our, our oil sands producers, have brought energy use down and water use down and emissions down by double digits over the last 20 years through significant investments? We have the ability to be a premier provider of energy. Um, it's it's huge for our GDP, the healthcare that you know your dad and my family's received. We we have this this wealth that is due to those sectors. I, I worked on Bay Street before politics. There would be no Bay Street were it not for the Incos, the Norandas, uh, the the PDAC conference for prospects. Alcan, Alcan, yeah, it that is our heritage, and we should be proud of it. And can we transform that into? an ESG heritage where we kind of show we're producing and we're the most ethical. We have emission programs. You can trust our regulation and, and what we report. Um, but my worry, we're getting in this fractured area in the U.S., which, you know, unfortunately that stuff bleeds into Canada. Now ESG is a scary word uh, that scares off young conservatives. Whether you call it corporate responsibility, whether you call it accountability to shareholders on what your plan is to get your missions down, we should use that as a competitive advantage. And I used to talk about economic reconciliation with Indigenous Canadians. There's so many First Nations that want to be equity owners and risk takers in these projects. That would get a lot of Toronto and Vancouver people more interested in these projects if they knew there was benefit for First Nations. So I think the long form discussions like you guys have um, I was actually going to ask to come on your show as conservative leader because I found no one follows CBC or CTV or any of these anymore. They select their own news, whether it's on TikTok or Twitter. 
And if we can get our message, when I say our as conservatives, through informed people to tell their audiences, I think that's, that's the future. That's something Pierre does very well with YouTube. But increasingly, we have to make sure we're talking outside our own little preference bubbles. We have to get those swing voters to hear this message. Yeah, it feels like, <clears throat> I feel anyways, just the mood on social media <clears throat> and just in general today in society is becoming so fractured. It feels like this this widening of society, you know, obviously the wealth gap is blowing out as well. And, you know, part of that has to do with, I think, the cost of living crisis that is that has emanated. Uh, and a lot of that has happened uh, through housing, which is a sector that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, I'm kind of curious, in, in your opinion, what on the federal level, because I know like a lot of housing is, 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 you know, supply targets and whatnot are done at the provincial and the municipal levels. But the, the biggest issue that I, we've been talking about for years, and it seems like now it's just starting to come into the mainstream conversation is, okay, the federal government sets the immigration targets at the federal level. And there's not really, I, I imagine there's a little bit of discussion at the provincial and municipal levels, but we're not building to to sort of keep up with with the amount of people that we're pulling in. So I'm kind of curious your opinion on like what can or should be done. Um, and does that include potentially, in your opinion, reducing immigration targets temporarily? Or like what what how do you how do you see that? What's what are we missing here? Yeah, you guys have really good discussions on this because yeah, you you have to be very careful about how you talk about immigration levels, housing, and all these sorts of things, because people on Twitter will say, oh, you're against immigration. I'm pro, pro, pro immigration. We don't have a replacement birth rate in Canada. We haven't for decades. We need immigration, but we have to realize that the vast majority of, of new families that come to join the Canadian family go to Vancouver, Montreal, or Toronto, and we've not been keeping pace, and particularly the bureaucracy in those municipalities has slowed things down, hasn't sped it up. So in the last election, I was really proud of our platform overall, but we had said that we were gonna tie all federal investments uh, in transit, like the SkyTrain. I did an announcement about a SkyTrain investment, but I said, we're also going to require a faster uh, development review approval process to all these federal investments. We know there's a three level of government partnership here, but we're letting immigration numbers rise, which I think is good, but you're slowing approvals for development. Um, there's a, a mayor in, the longest serving mayor in BC, Steve, you may know him, he's, he's on Vancouver Island. Um, he's in this little community, I'm forgetting it at the moment, but I met with him because he has just plowed it through and his mugs say, uh, get shit done on it. And <laughs> you know, I, I, I said, I wanted you to run and be our housing guy because we need that sense of urgency because there's already a crisis and we're, we're now moving into historic levels of immigration and we're not ready for it. And you're gonna see in my community in the GTA here in Durham region, we're having families with young kids living with their parents in homes here in, in Bowmanville, for example, because they can't afford to get into the GTA where their job is. What are we doing to solve that? So we need, more supply, we need less bureaucracy, and the federal government can tie these things. We also said, let, let younger first-time buyers, let them have a mortgage term 
that's longer than five years for, for their interest rate so that they can plan and have certainty. Let's shake up some of these 50-year par paradigms that don't fit for, for long, young millennials coming out of school. Um, I also think we should have a reduced tax level for, for those young people facing a different circumstance coming out of school uh, than most. I had this program I ran on a number of years ago called Generation Kickstart, where they have a larger basic personal exemption for five years to kind of kickstart their ability to get into some of these markets. I really think we have to throw out the old, uh, the old orthodoxies here and address the reality of the housing crisis. Can I ask yeah, you so just a quick question? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. You go no, ahead. no, go, you go, Steve. All right. So My I mean, question I guess is... to, to, I'm curious <laughs> now, I, I think you brought some really good points. Now, one of the questions I have is I know that at the federal level, they set targets for permanent residency. So I think the federal government, I believe is targeting for this year, I think it's 460,000 permanent residents. Um, but it seems like they don't have a target or they don't have a control threshold for um, non-permanent residents, which is basically temporary workers and, mm -hmm. and international students. And so when you sort of added up all of those numbers, that's how we exceeded 1 million uh, people, uh, new immigrants coming to this country in 2022. And so it seems like we didn't necessarily account for that. Is that, is that intentional? Is that just a blind side? What, like what, what happened there? I, I don't think they're, I think it is a bit of a blind side. They're increasing numbers without a real plan to, to make it work. And we still have some students that are working post COVID that haven't been, uh, given the ability to have a path to permanent residency, even though they're, they're claiming these numbers are increased, but I have dozens of cases of, of examples because certain rules require them to have an occupation code, what's called a NOC, a national occupation code that fits the certain regulations. We have to throw all the old systems out the window. I'll, I'll use another example, Steve, the provincial nominee programs. Um, we don't get enough going to parts of the country where we're actually having population go down like new brunswick for example that was my uh, question yeah that probably the most famous family that came during this the syrian refugee response um was the one in nova scotia that started the peace by chocolate i'm sure you've seen that and it even came up in the biden visit they're having great success and they were in a part of the, the country that up until the last few years had population stagnation uh, the Atlantic provinces have had this issue. Why are we not saying we will accelerate your joining, your, your permanent residency and your acceptance if, uh, if you go to, a, go to an area of the country that, that needs population? The, the provinces want to change things. I think we should really prioritize skills, prioritize people that will go to areas that need the population and, uh, and shake up the old system because it's not working for the needs of the country today. Aaron, haven't haven't we done that as Canadians? Hasn't Canada done this before? Because if you ever go to Winnipeg, everybody's blue eyes and blonde hair. And, you know, um, I think if, if I remember correctly, there was a bunch of Ukrainians who moved there in 1930s, unless I'm getting sort of my facts jumbled up. But I mean, Canada has done this before where they've said, OK, you're welcome to come to us, join us, welcome to our family, as you say, but you have to move to these particular jurisdictions. And and is that something we just fundamentally, fundamentally don't do, don't, do not do anymore? 
some of the some of the bureaucracy also doesn't like these programs as as Steve would know in in the Vancouver area which really first started accelerating Vancouver real estate was our Hong Kong response with the the handover uh, of of Hong Kong from the UK to to China which you know the one country two systems hasn't gone too well but we won't get into that we had a commercial stream an economic stream of immigration that allowed people to invest in businesses other things we should bring that back the bureaucracy hated that one because they thought it was a special line. But I had a policy on this years ago saying, if you have a small business in Truro, Nova Scotia, it has 30 employees, it's a CCPC, it's a privately owned company, and they their kids moved out west, they don't have anyone to do an earn out or sell this business to, why not allow someone that wants to come to Canada to, to invest in that? Um, I would put them to the front of the line, not just so that their money can go to work, so that the 30 families that depend on that job for that small fabricator are maintained. Um, and that would then direct, you know, new Canadians to an area of the country that not only need them, they need the investment. And so I think we should return some of these economic streams because you can have a, a multiplier effect while also satisfying you know our, our immigration targets you're bringing in more capital so some of the programs that worked very well there was tens of millions of dollars came into canada as a result of that hong kong program um, not all stayed long long term there's still 250,000 or so canadians that live in hong kong but it, it it was a net benefit for the country so let's look at all of these programs because i'm in favor of larger numbers we need it for economic growth but right now our old systems are not designed for that they're designed for the 280,000 or so that came uh, when when we were in government as the conservatives and even then the big cities were were not keeping pace with building I guess the question is like how do you keep these individuals in those provinces right says hey listen we'll fast track you if you go to you know rural Saskatchewan or something like that it seems it, see, it seems like every you know they might stay there for whatever their their two year period. I'm not sure the exact specifics of it, but uh, their two year period, and then they always seemingly everybody seems to keep ending up in Vancouver and Toronto, and that's really like your two unsustainable housing markets. Um, so I don't know how you actually keep it. It is a challenge. You have to design it. Um, the the job or the investment will keep them. So if, if they if they've come and invested or or are working or their 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 livelihood is tied to a certain job or location, they're more likely to stay. There is a draw to the diaspora communities for sure. Like when you're coming to a new country and you know there, there's new culture, there's new way of life, to have other people uh, to help you with that transition, of course that makes sense. But if we don't try and tilt it towards these these you know areas of the country where populations are flat we're never going to build up a bit of a uh, a bit of a group there so i i do think um mixing up these programs is what's needed alongside a rapid increase in in housing starts and and special rules for for younger home buyers but ones that fit with the the economy um it, it's time to shake it up that's why conversations like the ones you guys have regularly i think are so important can, really, I, can I switch? Yeah, oh, go, ahead, sorry, go, ahead. go ahead. I was going to switch gears a little bit because I just have, if, if you don't mind, Steve, just a, a quick question. Yeah. It's related, obviously, to population growth. One of the things that I've highlighted many, many months ago, and finally, I think uh, 
everybody else is sort of catching on as GDP per capita and how it's basically peaked in mid 2019 and now it's falling. Uh, I've said before, and I'll say it again, the only thing that matters is productivity growth. But in order to have productivity growth, you need to invest in research and development. Um, this is uh, research and development spending in real terms has been flat since 2022, uh, 2002. So both parties own, own the egg on their, on their face for this one. Um, I would argue, sorry to say what, why do you think Canada lags so badly in research and development spending? And what do you think that there can be a bipartisan effort in order to increase that? Great question. And when I got to Ottawa, um, I remember doing an interview and getting a bit of flack on it uh, as a new MP, but I kind of, there was a question in this vein. And I said, look, we became very lazy for decades because we sat on the doorstep of the largest market, the most voracious consumption market in the world. And all of our post-war policies, whether it was the auto pact or eventually Canada, U.S. free trade, eventually NAFTA was all based on, on selling to the U.S., and taking advantage of our weaker dollar and our healthcare system. It kind of made us lazy. And we, we got into a branch plant type mentality where we weren't innovating. Um, and so that's, that's why both parties own it going back to the fifties. It's also why I tried to shake it up a bit. Um, and uh, I think we have a lot to learn from Australia that had a, a commission, a productivity commission to make this a bipartisan issue so that there can be longer term plans, both from a tax and a competitiveness. In the election, I was really proud of one of our, our innovation announcements. We were gonna bring flow through shares, which you guys probably know it's technical, but it allows the cost of, a, of an early start business to be flowed through to its investors. So there's a really good tax advantage. That brought a lot for generations money into um, mining and exploration. Um, why not apply that to green tech or to some startups that want to scale up in Canada to bring all that private sector capital on the sidelines? You incentivize it in. Um, we announced that at Magnet Forensics before the last election. And Magnet's a great company that grew and, you know, has just been acquired. Um, we need to, to, to build that ecosystem beyond just the startup. We have a great startup ecosystem in Vancouver, in, in Kitchener-Waterloo, in Toronto, in Ottawa, but we don't really encourage the scaling up. Um, and I think there's a lot of policies that could easily push a lot of private capital into that. The super clusters that the government, you know, government can't pick anything well. The private sector can. Uh, if there's the positive incentive. And so I really think we have to look at this in a, in a huge way because our productivity has lagged. And if you look at what Australia has done on the same timeline, they're doing so much better than we are and we have more natural advantages than they do. Well, that's why I get so angry when a certain finance minister compares Canada to the G7. It's just such an absolute farce. We should, it's just the total, it's basically, it's borderline a lie um, because we should not be comparing ourselves to Japan, whose population has been shrinking for 20 years, or Italy, whose real GDP growth is flat over 20 years. We should be comparing ourselves to Australia, which is a young, resource-rich country um, that is basically, you know, next to a gigantic consumer economy, which is, you know, Australia's got China and we've got the U.S. Um, I think also related to the productivity growth is something I've discussed a lot. And again, both parties own this, which is the fact that Canada is dominated by oligopolies. 
And we've just seen Rogers buy Shaw, which I think is ridiculous. Uh, but there's oligopolies in banking, banking, it's oil, it's grocery stores, um, it's telecom. And I think that's, I mean, is this, the, are these discussions that go on in Ottawa that go, what, like, I mean, I'm, listen, I'm as capitalist as they come, but there's a certain point where there's too much market power in these corporations and that, that something needs to be shaken up. I mean, are these discussions that you guys have or the Liberal Party has or? Uh, not enough of them, no. Um, a friend of mine years ago wrote a book called Why Mexicans Drink Molson. I'm not sure if you ever heard about it, but we, we no. it's, you know, Molson's the old, oldest brewer in, in North America, but, you know, more more people drink uh drink Corona than, than, than Molson because we, we had a culture and a history. You had to brew your own beer in the province. It was made, you could no interprovincial trade. We need to break all of these things down because we, we really set up our country to survive against the, the strength of the U S. So we had a high tariff wall. We also had tariffs and, and regulations blocking Ontario and Quebec trade or Atlantic uh, and Quebec trade. So that then grew this culture of having one or two super large players by per region that just became, you know, dominant and the oligarchy you're talking about and, and then no, no competition, no innovation and, and higher costs for Canadians. So I said, we should have more uh, foreign ownership in these sectors provided that, you know, some of our players could compete in the U.S. There should be, you know, open skies, cabotage for airlines as well, allowing, you know, someone right. to pick up en route. And all of these things would create more competition. And provided we, we have equal access in the U.S., I think we should allow uh, more U.S., probably the U.S. investment in, in telecom and other sectors. It would be great for consumers and it would be, better for innovation. So I agree with you. It, you know, it's um, the new competition commissioner seems, it seems like I, I know her a little bit from my private sector world. We have a lot of men, friends in common. Uh, I think she's going to address that in a big way. Uh, the grocery scene is, is one that we raised the, the dominant players. There can be abuse of that in, in terms of rising in unison costs for suppliers in their stores. I was really, I praised Sobeys when during the pandemic, Sobeys didn't go in lockstep with Loblaws and Metro in, in terms of raising costs on domestic suppliers, uh, especially when grocery profits were going up. So I don't generally wade in like on salaries and stuff like this, but we should have more competition and we should really discourage this, this, you know, dominance between a few who then set the rules, then make policy changes in unison. We saw the bread fixing case with the, the grocers a, a number of years ago for price fixing. Uh, we should really clamp down on that stuff. And I do think the new commissioner seems to be headed that direction. Rich, do you have any, uh, Aaron, we appreciate it. We want to be respectful of your time. We know we've only got a couple more minutes left, but Rich, I don't know if you have any final questions. I've, I've, I've certainly got one, but Rich, I want to let you uh, get in your... Uh, <laughs> I've got loads of questions, man. I want to keep Aaron here for a while. Thank you so much again. Um, there's been some criticism um, of the Bank of Can Governor of Bank of Canada. Uh, I've been not on this show. Not on this show. <laughs> I, I don't remember that. Um, listen, I'm not saying that it's an easy job 
but and 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 I'm not a big fan of publicly criticizing him the way certain politicians have necessarily done. I'm extremely big fan of privately criticizing the mistakes that have been done. Um, do you think that it's appropriate for the, I'm going to get you in trouble, Aaron, so forgive me, but do you think it's appropriate for the leaders to do that publicly, or do you think that's better left in, in private? And then no, keeping in mind, of course, the context that I think he did an absolutely terrible job for the last bunch of years. Well, listen, Rich, I, I, you know, I thought it was really nice. You complimented Tiff's French last week on the show. I, you know, uh, as an Anglo, good, to be fair. as an Anglo that learned my French in the military, I know, you know, Anglos uh, appreciate those compliments from Montrealers and stuff. Uh, look, I, I've never tried to criticize a, uh, an individual bureaucrat, whether they're a very senior one, like the, the, the head of the Bank of Canada or a deputy minister or something like that. They're, we criticize the political leaders uh, who set the terms for the bank or, or you know, are, are responsible really for the finances of the nation. One of the biggest misses of the bank and particularly of the Liberal government was the risks of inflation from the incredible spending of the pandemic. Look, we spent hundreds of millions of dollars for 15-year-olds to get the CERB. People that are dependents of their parents were paid 2,000 bucks. I talked to mayors in, in, on Vancouver Island. Kids were plowing into vans and, and going out to feed on stuff like this. If you had five guys in a van, that was $10,000 a month with the CERB. It was insane. There never should have been. And we, we tried to say that. And Trudeau would always say, well, we've got your back. The conservatives are going to you know, be mean. Um, we knew there was going to be inflationary pressures before the war in Ukraine, before the zero COVID ridiculousness in China, because of that excessive spending, there were too many dollars chasing too few goods. And then we had a double whammy when there were supply chain uh, crises. The very fact that the bank and Ms. Freeland were, were, were talking about transitory, and I know you guys have, have cut that to shreds on the show, I'm glad they kind of owned up a little bit to their mistake here, but that rattled confidence and it was worthy of criticism. Uh, I do agree, you know, you can describe how you criticize it, but I do think there needs to be a reckoning within the bank um, on uh, how they could lead Canadians to think interest rates would be would be fine and would be sitting at historic lows for years to come because people refinance, you know, Mortgage brokers were, you know, were going to their clients, people were refinancing. And I think now there's going to be a lot of people overstretched because of very bad guidance from the bank. So I do think, uh, I do think the criticism has been fair. Uh, how that's, uh, how that's done is, uh, is style. But in this social media age, like Keith has told me that financial Twitter is much nicer than political Twitter. Uh, you guys will have to tell me if I'm right or not, but I just think it's hard to um, to avoid this kind of personal personal criticism in this day and age through social media. We should try to avoid it, but you know, people are well, hurting. Well, let me let me sorry, let me step. I don't think it was a personal criticism. When I criticize the bank of governor, it is a technical thing. I'm sure the guy's a lovely chap, but you know, with he made French. three. Yeah. Which great with great French. I would say um, uh, for me, it's never been a personal thing. He did a shitty job and he should be fired in my view, but I've just, it was just more about sort of how sort of in the annals of power in Ottawa, how that discussion goes on. And if there's sort of an admission 
even from the liberal party when no one's listening or when no one's watching that yeah we kind of screwed up a little bit and and here's what we should do to fix it or and that was sort yeah of and ultimately i'll tell you ultimately it's the politicians that should be held to account i, I can tell you i've got lots of neat stories but two two internal debates that i lost when i was in the conservative government was a minister was um you know i had recommended a replacement for carney and i lost that battle uh, jim flaherty won with with pelos i think pelos was good but i had someone that i thought would have been much better who was in the final few um i was against general vance being appointed the chief of defense staff and i lost <laughs> lost that battle too i wanted it to be uh, admiral mark norman who became famous for other reasons these are ultimately political decisions so who that who that leader is for these important institutions, the bank being probably one of the most important, um, is a political decision. And ultimately the political people need to be held to account. And I think if you look at Mr. Trudeau's own personal conduct when it comes to ethical decisions and his, his decisions with respect to some of these roles, um, even the CBC had recently criticizing uh, Pierre, uh, like that's completely offside for the national broadcaster to do that. So, you know, I don't criticize her. The prime minister should hold some of these people to account for their performance. But when his performance has been so poor and his own ethical decisions have been so poor, we, we see them. He allowed General Vance, he gave General Vance a promotion even yeah. after there were sexual misconduct complaints against him. So I, I think uh, I think we need to keep it the, the sort of, you know, attacks to the politicians, not the bureaucrats, but it's it's tough time on Twitter, and you're going to see a lot of you know roll up your sleeve stuff. Aaron, uh, final question here. We'll let you go. We're like, um, so we've got a lot of things to fix here in Canada. Uh, we've we've chatted about a lot of the you know the issues and hopefully some solutions in the near future. Um, the upcoming next election is uh, as of right now is set for October 2025. Do you think it happens before then? Ah, that's a million dollar question, Steve. The The other question is, is Justin Trudeau the liberal leader in that one? Uh, those are the big debates in Ottawa. Um, when when my family and I decided a while ago that, that you know, I would end my time with 10 and a half years in politics, really proud of what we've done. It was a bit bittersweet because I do love the job. I represent the community I grew up in. I had to look at that. 2025, I think it could go there because I think we're going to be in a recession next year. Uh, I think it might be softer than what I was thinking a year ago. I was kind of in the same view as you guys, actually, that maybe something big was coming um, because of the global scene, but because of our own. I, I'm in the personal camp that I think Trudeau's going to leave. Uh, I think um, the polls are not looking good. The foreign influence allegations and one of his own MPs res resigning from his caucus. Mm -hmm. So I think he's going to leave. And I, I think this could go to the end because the NDP have no money. Um, and I think the next election will be a, a battle royale. I, I, I'll kind of miss not being there, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm also looking forward to a bit of a return to the, the normalcy of the private sector. But let me say this. I also think if we can turn around some of these policies and some of our flagging productivity, we live in the best country in the world. Like whenever Agreed. I traveled, people, are so envious of what we have. We're just complacent. And I think we should be very optimistic about the future, but we just need leadership, I think. And in important discussions like the ones you have, we need more Canadians paying attention to this because 
The housing crisis isn't going to be solved in a year or even one election cycle. These important issues of immigration, of you know, our competitiveness, we need more seriousness than we're getting from kind of the, the media and the, and the social media discussion. So keep doing what you guys are doing. And if you ever need a former leader to come back on to, to you know, tell some more stories, I, I'd be more than happy. Yeah, well, thank you so much for, for, again, taking your time to come on the show, but not only that, but for serving the country as well. Um, it's, you know, politicians certainly take a lot of flack, but uh, I know it's it's uh, it's not a very rewarding job. And we, you know, like I said, we appreciate your service. You know, you ultimately are trying to do the best for the country. Thanks. I think it's the same on all sides. You know, I used to say to my kids, you know, don't, don't criticize people. Don't criticize. I don't criticize Mr. Trudeau. I respect him. But I think the red team makes a lot of dumb decisions and the blue team has some better ideas. I think everyone gets in it for the right reasons. And we should never lose sight of just how, how great our country is, how fortunate we are. We just, we just got to pull up our socks. And uh, I think, you know, maybe one of you guys should run and, uh, and, and start kicking in some doors in terms of policy in Ottawa. Boomer for PM. I don't think they would like what I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'd have to come back to Canada. You couldn't just sit in front of uh, a picture. Careful, careful what you wish for, Aaron. Careful what you wish for. <laughs> well, awesome. I, I, I think this conversation has been fun and look forward to you guys continuing to define the, the opportunities and threats to our country going forward. Thanks again, Thank Aaron. Thank you so much. We really it. appreciate it. I thought it was a really good interview with Aaron. Um, you know, some, some great insights, obviously, like I said, we try to keep the partisanship out of it as much as possible. So hopefully people can, like we said, look past that um, and just understand that this country has a ton of opportunity ahead. And, um, you know, hopefully politicians from all different stripes can come together and, and move this country forward. And and I think that's becoming increasingly more challenging uh, in this fractured society, social, social media, amplifying, you know, left-leaning, right-leaning views. Um, so that, that is going to be the big challenge moving forward, but hopefully, you know, at least on our podcast, we're hoping that we can kind of bring these ideas uh, forward. Well, I'd very much like to have someone, I mean, ideally we'd love to have JT on. That'd be great. Uh, like that'd be amazing. I'm like, Come on the show. Come on down. I think it's, I mean, we have to also like, just let's like, you know, let's, I mean, Aaron, we're very grateful that he came on. He was literally the conservative leader. So obviously he's going to, you know, he's going to have certain views that are, are specific to his, um, his party. And that's, I mean, that's fair enough. I'm not sure necessarily I agreed with everything he said, but that's why it's so fun to have people who are on our channel and are on our show who we disagree with. So we can learn from st some stuff and we can, I don't know, have discussions. Um, I think the big yeah, takeaway think... is just like how entrenched like certain things in in our country are, are how they work, right? Like how immigration is entrenched and how we're, we're we're less productive because of X, Y, and Z. And we have yeah. these oligopolies and it's like, yeah, it's not going to be an overnight fix. Um, you can hopefully just make little tweaks along the way over, you know, a decade and, and to slowly improve the country. Yeah, I also think I think the other thing I I'd, I always like to believe that there's probably a lot more in common than um, than what we have. Like, sorry, we have a lot more in common than what we disagree with. And I think sort of the 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 shame is that we've sort of, sort of absorbed some of the American like political zeitgeist as Canadians because we are dominated by their news feed and we do get Fox News and all that rubbish. I think we've sort of like we feel that we need to emulate their political um you know their political machinations 
when generally, I'm sorry, I'm going to say, I think Canada's best run by at, in the center. Uh, it's taking some of those good conservative ideas with those good liberal ideas. Sorry, to, sorry, YouTube comment section, but it's true. There are they exist, and um, and sort of and sort of being much more centrist in our approach. Um, you know, it's so, funny. People call me like. Like, well, I see the YouTube comments, like, this is like a bros right leaning <laughs> channel. And I'm like, I, I, I can tell you, like, holistically, I, I have voted for every political stripe, whether that, you know, in BC, federally. Um, so, so, so yeah, that rankles me as well. Because for me, having a strong, well funded welfare state to me is why my father, who's no longer with us, was just so damn proud to be Canadian, you know an immigrant from a shitty African island came here with nothing and built, he sent me and my sister to fancy schools. He built a life for us. Like I'm very, very proud of a being the son of immigrants, B our welfare state it really rankles me when people say, Oh, you're right wing and left wing. It's like, that's bogus. I think we should really strive to be much more about what's the best answer to the complicated problem, regardless of who comes up with it. And, um, and yeah, yeah so that, that's so my view. But anyway, speaking of all this uh, government talk here, let's just quickly, quickly get to the uh, bolts and nuts here. Uh, Canada's inflation uh, news out this week. So that uh, headline inflation came down, I think it was from 5.2 to 4.3% yeah. uh, on a year over year basis. So basically, you know, uh, the headline inflation year over year base effects working in our favor. Um, and this is I think to the Bank of Canada came out what last week, two weeks ago, saying, "Listen, we've got headline inflation hitting three percent this summer. It seems like increasingly likely that we're going to get there." But if you want to walk through some of the inflation data, because yes, there are still segments or sectors that are are going to be stickier, and and some of that is going to be on the wage front, which we'll get into as well. Yeah, so I mean, we always we talk about um, goods and services. So goods is being dragged down by energy. Um, naturally, it's whatever, 11% or whatever it is of the CPI basket. So it stands to reason if you're going to have um, year on year or base effects that are going to hurt energy prices, or lower energy prices, that that's really going to affect the goods portion. Um, services is where I've talked a lot about it being sticky and related, related to wages. So we'll get into the wages and the a little bit later, but that's also come off. So that's, I think, really, really interesting. Um, so it's at 5.4. Again, it's still rising year on year, but it, you know the second derivative is now <laughs> starting to slow. Um, the sh shelter component, your favorite, Steve, is finally coming off. So now um, it's shelters at 5.4. So that's a significant drop off from where it was. I think it was 7.6 thousand in the beginning of 2022. And uh, my three favorites are core inflation, but the special measures, those three preferred measures of inflation, which is the trimmed mean, the weighted mean, and the one based on a factor model. I don't know what the factor model is, but that's what it's called. And those have really come off sharply. I have a question uh, for I, you. Yeah, shoot. Uh, and I've seen a lot, like, a lot of it on Twitter because everybody now is like, you know, armchair, <laughs> <inflation> expert. <laughs> armchair economist, inflation expert, um, CPI inflation rising. I think it was like 0.5% month over month. So everyone's like freaking out being like, yeah, it's, it's falling year over year, but like it's going up half a percent a month. So if you times that by 12, that takes you to 6% annual inflation. Like, so how do you kind of like filter through that noise? It's not, it's nonlinear. I mean, that's, that's the thing people would, this is why the transitory thing was just so bogus. It's nonlinear that going up and it won't be linear coming down. Um, they're right. You know, uh, core inflation X energy went up 0 0.6. 
I mean, one data point does not make a trend, you know, come at me in a couple of months. Um, we know that inflation is set to peak and has peaked. Um, it's a, there's a, you know, I know it's like a nuanced answer. It's, you know, back to the Aaron, Aaron questions, Aaron, it's like these, it's the simple explanation is often the wrong one when it comes to these kinds of issues. Like you, we will just have slowing inflation, but it will take a long time to get bound energy. However, the counter argument to that, sorry, Steve, to go on, but is that we are, I mean, there are certain items that will start to, that will interestingly start to contribute to inflation going up again. So that's the trick about base effects, right? So in the US, for example, just we have, you know, used car prices was a bit, everyone was talking about used car prices and how it was bringing up inflation. Well, guess what? Used car prices have stopped falling. You're actually about to start rising again. So that's where we need to just be a little bit sort of careful. Which is um, interesting. I'm kind of watching that space because I know like Tesla's already announced two price cuts. Yeah. To their new vehicles. Again, not used cars, but new vehicles. And it's like, well, why are they doing that? Is this demand softening or like, what's the scoop here? Yeah, fair enough. Um, I think it's just it, it's just going to take a while when you have an incredible you know dislocation like we did. It's going to take more than just a year to sort of recalibrate all of these indices before all these base effects kind of wash out. Um, I know you you've know, been I, I know you've been talking ahead, a lot about like wage wage pressures. To me, it definitely seems like wages are going to be stickier um, as they should. I mean, you know, the the one. Big news this week, obviously, is the the public sector, right? The the federal uh, government union there, um, 155,000 workers just hit the picket lines, obviously, demanding higher wages. And and I understand, I get it. Like, cost of living is is egregious. Um, you know, a two percent wage bump is is it like let's call it what it is. It's not going to do it. Uh, right. You're falling further and further behind just because we've had just enormous inflation, uh, housing, et cetera. Um, but you know, it's interesting because I think this one's going to be so, I think this one will be watched very, very closely. You know, remember Tiff Macklin coming out, what, six to 12 months ago saying, Hey, you know, employers make sure that when you're setting wages, you're not baking in uh, sustained higher inflation, basically, AKA don't give your employers big, big increases because we will get inflation down. And so this one is like now front and center and saying, okay, well, what's the federal government going to do with this? This is a really big hot potato. Man, I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm a totally of two minds here because part of me feels like that wage growth is a secular trend. We've talked about this a lot. If you just have fewer working age people, then there's going to be an uplift in right if less supply and the demand is okay then you're going to have your prices going to rise that's the difference between the major difference between Canada and the US so Canada's had a really really intense population growth and it's relatively young people and that's put somewhat downward pressure on wages so if you look i'm looking at it right now um wage growth in Canada is 3.2% for services it's you know around 2.9 manufacturing's a bit higher um, in the U.S., you know, you have wage growth of six percent, seven percent, depending on on what part of the, whether you're poor or young or what have you. I mean, young. I think at one point, wage growth for people aged between sixteen and twenty four was at twelve percent year on year. I'm, I, I'm not even kidding; it's a crazy number. Whereas in Canada, we haven't at all seen those that that wage that wage pressure, and real wages have been negative for a long time. And so it's tough for me to like turn around to these people who've been losing, right? They've been running just to fall behind. And, 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 you know, 
I mean, whether they work for the government or not, they have cushy jobs or not. I mean, that's sort of a secondary issue. I mean, I think that that's an important, I think these people have every right to say we are losing, we're running behind and we want to demand higher wages. I mean, who knows if they'll get them. But the other thing is important to remember, this is like labor markets are lagging indicators. And so that's where I think it'll get really interesting going over the next 12 months. As the economy starts to slow, if it slows, you're going to you're going to be rising, you're going to ask be asking for higher and higher wages into sort of a slowing economy. So we'll see. Yeah, it's interesting just on that uh that strike there. So I guess the uh, the unions asking for 13 and a half percent over the next three years, which is they say is cumulative is match the cumulative inflation since 2021. So it'd be about four and a half percent annual wage appreciation. The government's offered them three percent a year for the next three years, but even like even three, right? I mean, so I, I mean my my personal opinion, I, again, not not an economist here, but I I think that to, I agree with you. I think that you know three percent inflation is the new two. Nah, well, come on down. <laughs> I agree with you. No, I'm laughing because, of course, it's amazing how the zeitgeist has sort of changed, not to overuse that word, right? From a couple of years ago, it was like, oh, inflation transitory. And now everybody's like pretty well wrapping their heads around the fact that inflation is going to be higher for longer. I agree with you. Um, you know, not to pump my own tires here. I just think that that's, that's the sort of the world that we live in. Another thing that's obviously also, also going to contribute to that is the deficit spending like it or hate it irrelevant that's what's happening if you look at the big like two or three of the largest countries in the world so us is going to continue deficit spending china europe india canada so i mean that doesn't help um and and i think that we know that the, the central bankers are in a tough spot they cannot continue to raise interest rates because of housing and household debt and where mortgages are tied to and so, you know, they're they're handcuffed a little bit. So, yeah, Steve, I think that that's, um, that's a really good point. There's another couple of data points that I thought were interesting. We might, if we have enough time to just quickly go over them, which is the, P, the PPP, oh, I screwed that up, the Producer Price Index, PPI. Um, and that's absolutely cratered. And that tends to lead inflation, headline inflation, excuse me, that tends to lead headline inflation. So it will be interesting, you know, just to counter some of the people who are obsessed with this and month. Just a PPI, number. producer price index. Yeah, that's right. Sorry, excuse me. Um, just the people, you know, again, one month does not create a trend. So it's just, let's all, you know, pump the brakes. Let's see what happens over the, over the summer and, and, and we'll see. But is the view, is the view at Acorn that you still get headlining, like, let's say Canada down to three in the summer. Oh yeah. Headline. I mean, headline will, will crash out just because, of, just because of energy. It's just, it's just, you know, you, you have like the contribution. So the weight times the, the weight times the, the volatility. And what we've seen is the weight's relatively large. I think it's 11%. I can't remember the number. Um, and then the volatility has been massive, right? 30% up or 40% up in the price of energy. And then now we're, we're going to go down 20 or 30%. So you just multiply your weight times that number and you get a significant drag or thrust in your, in your, in your headline number. It's, it's, I know it sounds dumb, but it's just maths, right? So whereas the core bit, I think is going to be much, much stickier because of services, because of shelter, because of a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Do you have any anything else macro-wise that you're uh, focused on this week? Um, what else macro-wise? Um, I think China's interesting. I know this is a bit of an offshoot, forgive me, but I mean, people don't like the data from China. I get it. But the, I think we're still sort of underestimating the, the degree to which China opening up 
will impact the global economy. Um, it is one of the largest, if not the largest economy in the world. Um, you know, they said that their GDP grew faster than expected. Okay, whatever. Fine. If you don't like or trust their number or whatever. But the fact is they had COVID zero where nothing, no one was doing anything to now they're not COVID zero. And that's clearly, you know, stimulative, whether you trust the numbers or not is irrelevant. That is much more stimulative than it was before. And the other thing that's really important about that is that policymakers have pledged to support the economy. What does that mean? It means keeping interest rates low. It means providing liquidity. It means providing loans, infrastructure project, all the same crap that China used to do. They're just going to sort of ramp up. And you can see it in factory output. You can see it in um, steel production is, is has snapped right back. Retail sales are up 10%. Um, so, you know, you can criticize the numbers all you want, but the point is one of the largest eco economies in the world is starting to ramp itself back up. And I think that that's going to be really interesting and in, in how that affects yeah. the global economy over the next six months or whatever. And maybe that's why we just continue to muddle along. Like it's like everyone's kind of watching yeah. the data points. Yeah. They're like, they're, they're softening up, you know, there's more job loss, but it's kind of just, and maybe it is to Keith, Keith would probably be here saying maybe it's building to this crescendo, but it seems like we've been much more resilient in the face of interest rates at basically 5% is, is. Yeah. Well, there's actually one more thing. Yeah. Well, what's one last, sorry, one last thing I think is really interesting. It's at its earnings season right now. I think there's about, I want to say the last time I looked at this, it was like 6% 6 of all S and P 500 companies have reported. So it's very, very small. Obviously today there was a bunch I think Amex reported, I think, uh, you know, I think even Tesla reported, I think a bunch of them, I can't remember now. And over the next like couple of days, we're going to get, so the market's down now because we had a bad run of earnings releases. Um, over the next couple of weeks, or yeah, next, next couple of weeks, we're going to figure out what's going on with margins, what's going on with sales, you know, obviously supply constraints have improved. You've shared with me like the Harpex and Shanghai um, freight industry. So we know that that's improved. But, you know, if you look at semiconductor sales, they're way, way down. That leads tech EPS growth. I mean, it's it's possible that over the next six weeks or whatever, when we get these earnings data, that things are actually have actually sort of gotten much, much worse. And so it will be this will be a really fascinating sort of few weeks to see are companies doing well, what's going on with margins, are they hiring, are they firing, and are they guiding towards better earnings or worse earnings for 2023? Yeah, no, I think it's a great place to wrap it up. Um, you know, as always, we appreciate uh, the support here on the Looney Hour. All we ask that you share this episode with at least one friend or family member to continue to build out the community and the audience here. Uh, we appreciate your support and we'll see you next week.